This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello, welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Ben Schiller, features editor here at Coindesk. And joining me today is Danny Nelson. Hi, Danny. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. And Cam Thompson, she is a Web3 reporter here at Coindesk. Hi, Cam. Hello, hello. So we're recording this on Monday, March 13th, about midday. And just want to put out a disclaimer to say that everything we say here might turn out to be wrong in a few days' time because this is a fast-moving environment, as it always is in crypto, particularly now, though, uh, when we have a full-blown crypto-induced banking crisis or what looks like a banking crisis. So, Danny, talk us through uh, the last few hours. What has it been like uh, reporting on this story? Well, you know, I, I do think it's safe to say that we are in a full-blown banking crisis in the U.S. President Biden spoke this morning only for a couple of minutes, but anytime you have the president speaking about bank failures, that probably means something's not going right. And the something that didn't go right uh, this week, of course, was the collapse of a trio of banks, all relevant to the crypto industry, uh, Silvergate, then Silicon Valley Bank, and then Signature Bank, which really has set the stage for a massive debanking of the entire U.S. crypto industry. We're now really unsure where U.S.-based crypto companies are going to be putting their money because there weren't many banks that were willing to, to touch the crypto industry, and now there are three fewer. All right. So, Danny, obviously a lot of this started to unfold late last week into the weekend. What has your experience been covering this, staying up to date, you know, being the first mover on these stories? You know, talk about that a little bit. My experience is I am amazed that I got eight hours of sleep last night, quite honestly. But really, it was a factor of me working and writing three stories between 5 p.m. Eastern on a Sunday and 9 p.m. Eastern. That was when everything went to hell in a handbasket for the third time, and the feds announced their response to, uh, I, I literally have to remember which bank failed and when. On Sunday night, the feds said that all depositors at Silicon Valley Bank would get their money back, also said that Signature Bank was closing down. That caused a chain of events in my mind and in my writing that kept me up for a couple hours of work on the weekend, just trying to keep abreast of a very fast-moving situation. Right. So we're going to get to the repercussions of this, but maybe we can just talk about what caused this and whether we think this is really crypto related. Uh, what is your opinion about that? I mean, uh, you know, Silvergate was very much identified with the crypto industry, it was banking the crypto industry when other banks weren't, uh, whereas Silicon Valley Bank is really a different creature. It's really with the mainstream tech industry rather than with crypto. And Signature is also kind of lumped in with Silvergate, but is arguably not really a crypto bank, quote unquote. Uh, where do you stand on that sort of question? So I would say that the first bank to fail, or to voluntarily liquidate rather, because it was not taken over by the feds, uh, Silvergate really did position itself as a crypto bank. The next two were more crypto-friendly banks that had very robust other businesses and had a little bit of exposure to the crypto industry. So I wouldn't say that the whole crisis is caused by crypto, but the ramifications for crypto are very severe. And also for the wider economy and for just how we think about how the government treats deposits before this week, before today, before last night, really, you know, you had $250,000 in a bank that was FDIC insured. Beyond that, who knows what's going to happen unless the Fed bails out a bank. 
Now it appears that all deposits at all banks all the time are basically insured by federal programs, which is a huge change in how we think about banking in the United States. So Danny, another question I want to ask you is a big part of the events unfolding over the last couple of days point to the stablecoin USDC. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on what's been going on exactly. Yes. So basically, USDC is the second biggest stablecoin, and it's backed by short-term treasury bonds as well as cash deposits at banks. Now, Circle, the issue of USDC, had a lot of cash reserves, $3.3 billion at Silicon Valley Bank. When Silicon Valley Bank went under, everyone got concerned in the crypto markets that the assets backing USDC weren't kosher, that maybe some money wasn't going to be there. And so the price of USDC dropped below a dollar all the way down to 88 cents. Now, this has huge ramifications for all of crypto because so much trading runs through USDC. And if, and if the dollar stablecoin isn't worth a dollar, well, that's not good. And it's not good in many, many different ways, more than we can imagine. The, the response from the feds, which is basically that all depositors will get their money back, basically meant that Circle would have its $3 billion and the peg is mostly restored. But in my reporting last night, I realized this, the story ain't over for Circle yet and they're not nearly out of the woods because without these three banks that have all failed now, there's just a huge part of crypto's banking infrastructure that's just gone up in smoke. And it's really not clear to me how these companies are going to move forward when they don't have their infrastructure that they used to, just to move money around. But it's not as though there aren't uh, other banking services available. I mean, there, there are some more mainstream banks providing services, and there's also you know, services overseas. Do we think that uh, these crypto companies will now look for other jurisdictions that are safer and available to banking services? Well, you're certainly right. There are services overseas, but with the banking services specifically, the death of Silvergate and Signature takes out two systems that they had in place called the Silvergate Exchange Network and the uh, signature Signet, these were real-time payment systems that just don't exist anymore. So they're not easily replicatable. And yeah, they some businesses will be able to move overseas, but there's a lot of just reasons, jurisdiction, regulatory-wise, why if you don't have to bank overseas, you don't want to. And now they might have to, and that's not a good thing for the U.S. crypto industry. Right. I mean, there's a huge irony here about crypto, isn't there? That it's supposed to be a new financial system, but it's obviously very dependent on the legacy financial system. And it was also a movement that started off with the 2008 financial crisis, which was, you know, all about bailouts from the from the government of um, institutions that were failing. And now we're in another era when people are talking about bailouts for crypto-related banks. There's a kind of a huge irony there, don't you think? Oh, Ben, the irony here is absolutely scrumptious. We've got billions of dollars in supposedly decentralized crypto trading, all reliant on trading with USDC, which is backed by treasury bonds, which means it's backed by investments in the US government and in cash deposits held at banks, which are now being insured fully, basically, by the US government. So crypto has created an ecosystem that was designed to avoid and evade the trust issues that are prevalent in our existing systems. And it is completely reliant in some areas on a financial instrument that is totally wrapped up in those instruments. 
So, you know, you look at this mess and you think, if you start to think, and when you start to think about this mess, it can never be good. What have we actually built here? And what we've actually built here is just a derivatives system that is abstracting away all of the complications and bad things that we said were inherent in the old system. Cam, you got a take on that? Yeah, it is incredibly ironic, right? Especially looking at the roots of when Bitcoin was created and now the point where we're at. And a lot of people obviously are comparing what has gone on in 2008 to what's going on right now. Um, You know, obviously it's not the same, but it is interesting. Another, I guess, follow-up question I have, Danny, you know, this episode will come out Thursday. We don't know what's going to happen before then. We don't know where we'll be at when listeners are listening to this podcast. So where do you think these early bank failures are going? Is this it? Will there be more? What are you predicting? Well, I don't think there will be more bank failures because what the government has basically said here is, everyone, calm down. You're not going to lose your money. All depositors will be made whole. And if all depositors are going to be made whole, then no one has a reason to pull their money out. Going forward, we're going to have to grapple with the ramifications of a system that is basically just completely reliant on the government to back it up, which is, from a crypto perspective, highly troubling. For the crypto industry... I mean, I think it's kind of hard to understate how bad the banking scene is now for crypto companies. There's nowhere left to go in the US in a big way. It's interesting to look at the crypto companies who held money at Silicon Valley Bank. A lot of them are a little bit more on the traditional side. But when looking at the Web3 side of things, I was surprised to find out that Proof, which is NFT collective that focus on empowering artists through several different collections, Their flagship Moonbirds NFT collection has dumped in value over the weekend. And part of the reason is because Proof said on Friday that they held money in Silicon Valley Bank, causing FUD and people to want to sell these assets. So it's interesting to look at how some NFT collections might be impacted by this down the line. And Cam, could you tell us the story of one very, very shaky handed whale that responded aggressively to this news? Yes, one whale over the weekend sold 500 moonbirds on zero fee NFT marketplace Blur, which is another story in itself, courting these pro traders who can make these massive, massive trades for no fees and literally tank the price of a collection. Are you saying that the whale was out to tank its own holdings intentionally? No, no. What I'm saying is that on Blur, this NFT marketplace that is targeted towards pro traders or people who are making very large NFT trades, they can purchase a lot, they can floor sweep, they can also sell off a large amount of their holdings for zero fees. And much of this is just to do with fear around the actual company behind Moonbird. So whether or not Proof was going to be able to deliver on some of the promises that they set out to do with the associated benefits of holding a Moonbird. But isn't this just a case of uh, scapegoating the crypto industry? I mean, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was not really related to the crypto economy at all. But, you know, when Silvergate went under, it was associated with that failure. And somehow people blamed crypto for SVB's fall. Same thing is happening now with Signature. I mean, isn't it sort of a case of people blaming wider problems in the financial system on crypto when crypto is only partly to blame? You know, yes and no, in my opinion. I mean, in a way, we're being made to eat our own dog food here. If if there is any role that crypto is having in the real financial systems collapse here, 
then we have to ask ourselves, well, why was crypto playing in those sandboxes in the first place? So I don't really hear regulators saying, well, crypto did this. It's more venture capitalists did this, causing a run. And I don't really know why Signature went kaput. It sounds like the feds just decided to take it over. I'm sure there was some more specific reason. I'm just very troubled by the scrumptious ironies, as we were talking about, that are being prompted by when you think about how crypto is so reliant in some parts on the existing financial systems. This is not how it was supposed to be. All right, I think it's time to wrap up this section. Thank you very much, Danny. Thank you, Cam. Let's get to our next segment. Hey, everyone. This week, we are combining Cam's Corner and our speaker spotlight for a very special edition. This little combined segment, we have a guest, Dave Krugman, photographer and founder of Creative Collective All Ships, who's also going to be speaking at Consensus. So very exciting. Dave, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I always love talking to you guys about all these ideas, and I'm, I'm very, very excited for Consensus as well. Incredible. All right. So speaking of conferences, you were just at NFT Korea. Tell me about how it was. What was what was it like there? What did you get up to? Oh, I got up to so much. I mean, I took so many pictures, which is always my favorite part. Um, just wandering around, getting lost in the city and, and, and creating the, the work that I love to make. But I think the thing that I took away from this experience was there's such a vibrant international community that's interested in, in these Web3 technologies and meeting other people with uh, such a passion for the space from all over the international community is something that I find to be very, very encouraging as we look to the future. Awesome. Awesome. So tell me about some of these different types of artists, you know, getting into NFTs on the traditional art side versus the Web3 native side. You know, what are some of the themes you saw at the conference or you've seen recently in the past couple months? So I think the interesting thing that's happening with digital art right now is we're kind of all seeking some alternative economic model for art online. What the blockchain allows is for us to have these digital originals. And so in a world before this, everything online was kind of a copy of a copy of a copy. And the best you could do was trade attention for some money for your work or something like that. I think what we're seeing with this technology that artists are so excited about is this ability to kind of crowdfund, so to speak, by letting a wider group of people participate economically in the work you're making. So I think that it's, again, very early and just the start of this new wave that artists can interact with the internet. But it's one that I, I definitely think is the future for, for art and especially art online. So Dave, I just wanted to, and not to be a Debbie Downer here, but you know we have been through a big kind of hype cycle here with the NFT market with big run up in prices and uh, lots of transaction volume on platforms like OpenSea. But there has been a big drop off in the last few months. So we've been through a number of crypto scandals. Do you see any sort of falling off of enthusiasm amongst artists for this new model? I mean, there's a lot of enthusiasm for the idea of autonomy and artists kind of owning the means of production and the means of distribution. But haven't we also seen a bit of a meteor thrown at this model as well in the last few months? Yeah, and I think that's that's definitely true that there's been a lot of friction. And I think that the way I, I kind of look at this stuff is anything that is this disruptive is going to meet a lot of resistance. But long term, I think the vision is just such a it's such a better way for creatives on the internet to engage with their communities that I think in the long term, it, it does ultimately win out. I know from my own personal experience and from the experience of so many of my peers, 
who have made their living in online spaces over the past decade on, on more like Web2 attention economy based models, that being able to have a more sovereign identity online and, and to use these tokens to build longer term creative ideas, it, it's kind of freeing a lot of us from what I call the circadian cycle of content creation that I find to be incredibly unhealthy. So when people have a bit more stake in my work because they own, you know, a, a, an NFT or, or, or a piece of my crypto art, you know, we can build much longer term relationships around those things because they have an asset that aligns our incentives. Completely agree that we have a long way to go here. But I do think that the advantages over uh, the typical models for creatives on the Internet are just so vast that this is going to ultimately win out as a, as a better way for creatives to engage with, with their communities. Well, with, with the attention economy and tokens, I mean, are, are tokens solution to the attention economy or won't, will they not just maybe be subject to the same issues that we all have with attention these days? Like if everyone has a token and everyone, you know, has their community built around a token, the holders of those tokens are going to have some trouble keeping focus on the ones that really matter, right? So how do you make sure that as this model becomes more prevalent, if it does, it doesn't become dilutive? Yeah, so I think that's a really great question. I think the thing to consider here is that almost all economies to me seem like attention economies. It's like, you know, like even the traditional art world, right? It's like who can garner, you know, who can use the media landscape to create enough of a narrative around themselves to be a relevant artist. For better or worse, it's, that's a hard place to get to. To be able to make a living off your art, for example, you have to attract a certain amount of attention from, from the culture that you're operating in. I don't think anything necessarily fundamentally is changing about that. I do think that this creates a, a much more fluid way for artists to engage with their communities. I, I do think if I could define uh, like what an NFT is in one sentence, it would be it's, it's a very effective tool to al align incentives within communities. So Dave, I want to riff off of this a little bit. Last week, we were talking to Eli Scheinman, who's the head of art at Proof, and we were discussing how artists are able to keep building these communities, whether it's crypto winter, whether it's long periods without releasing new collections as a part of a greater body of work. So how do you work to continue to empower your community surrounding all ships, surrounding your work, really trying to bolster that continued shared narrative and shared love of the pieces you're creating, of these experiences that you're making for your community? So I think my like bird's eye view of what's happening with the space and happening with internet technologies in general is that we're kind of creating these digital ecosystems. And much like a forest ecosystem or something like that, there's all these different components, like there's trees and there, there's the mic microsial network beneath the surface. And it's kind of like the way to build a really robust creative community is to create symbioses within that community. So you could almost look at what's happening with ETH as like this nutrient layer of this digital ecosystem. And if you can focus on the health of your wider ecosystem, you, like, the less you have to focus on your own individual health because you have this system of interconnected mutual support. So what I try to do with my, my artwork and my uh, art sales is I use that to fund my creative community, All Ships. And the focus of All Ships is to create spaces for artists to connect, to create systems of support, you know, to create uh, an editorial platform in which we can tell deeper stories, again, breaking free from that circadian rhythm of content creation. And so I, I think that making sure that you're adding value to whatever community you're a part of is, is a surefire way to get value back out of that network. Cam, are you seeing other NFT creators and communities using this type of uh, strategy 
in their approach to the space? Honestly, not really many people going back to creating this collective of artists and people who they're, you know, also empowering for that shared love of digital art, the shared love of a creative community. I mean, it's definitely something that I've noticed a lot of NFT projects have created these promises of, oh, you buy this NFT and you'll get this thing, you'll get this thing next year. But rather than, you know, taking those funds and doing something that's promised later, you know, putting it into empowering a group of people who are all passionate about the same thing is something that's very interesting. And I think, you know, and especially in a space that's so nascent, being able to all really learn from each other and come together. I mean, the Web3 community is so tight. And that's one of the reasons why. And I think that's an example I think a lot of other projects can look to. Dave, another question I want to ask you. So you've spoke about the pressures of social media for artists before and how, you know, Web3 and NFT communities might change this a little bit. So could you elaborate on exactly what these structures are in this Web2 world that we've previously existed in, previously built, and how Web3 is kind of coming in to change some of those things? Yeah, so I think one thing I want to be clear about is that we're we're still in in the web 2 world. Like there I don't see much of a division between what people call web 2 and web 3. I think what web 3 has given us is is a little bit of leverage and an additional tool to connect our communities around. So, the biggest shift for me is that prior to this layer of the internet, my only currency really that I could operate with is attention. And so, when attention is your only currency, you have to optimize for attention. You really have to play to, you have to favor the algorithm. And it, it's just a pretty inefficient conversion to convert attention into USD. Now, if you can create a system by which you can have a thousand collectors that are doing little micro transactions in order to be patrons of your art, that's a way to kind of monetize your attention much more directly without having to go through so many third parties because every third party that's in the mix, you know, advertising agency, the platforms themselves, all these, you know, sub agencies and, and influencer marketing agencies, everybody's going to take a little bit of the, the value that's being created in online spaces. And so if I can, if I can have another system by which I can have this kind of art market built around microtransactions within a community, I have an alternate revenue stream that can help both support my normal attention economy revenue stream, but also enhance the, the depth of the relationships I'm, cre- I'm making with my you know, fans and, and my audience online. I feel like you just perfectly described what NFTs are in that answer. Attention for USD to digital ownership for USD. I think that's plain and simple, one of the best ways to describe it. And I don't think enough people are seeing that. But, but what does that actually mean? Like, I heard it. But I don't know what the f*** that means. I just, when I, when I see an NFT, I, I'm thinking about the art, right? Like all these intricate motions in between the economy and, and monetary and currency. Like, is that how we should be thinking about NFTs or? Yeah, I think that's exactly, I think that's a huge part of what NFTs are. I mean, obviously the art is beautiful and art serves a purpose within our economy, even without NFTs. It's a huge part of our economy. But an NFT, the actual token, is, is much more than just art. It's actually a tool that can help you know, bind communities around a common cause. It makes the incentives of my audience much more aligned with the incentives of me, the artist, because I'm not just asking for their attention. I'm kind of asking for their participation and, and this conversation around the art that we're creating and you know, forming a community around ideas. For example, I have a project called Drive. And what I did with Drive was I sold 91 pictures of cars. They all kind of match like little matchbox cars. But I held 20 of those back 
And then, you know, every month or two, I do a, a photo contest online and we get hundreds of entries from all over the world, people shooting in the style of these cars. And so I, get, I reward them with another token if they complete this creative challenge. And so today we've created a community of people that, you know, go out into the world and photograph cars in these style and create this whole narrative body of work. And we're all doing that together. And, and people who hold those tokens are kind of invested advocates in this creative idea that we're building together. So if you think about the potential for filmmaking, for playwrights, for all sorts of creative ideas that uh, require some sort of invested audience, I think it's, it's harder to find a, a better tool for doing this in digital spaces right now. So in conversations with these artists, in understanding you know, who's entering the space, who's emerging, what are some new trends you're starting to see in 2023? You know? Now we're in a place where trading volumes are back up and we're seeing a little bit more enthusiasm around NFTs and digital ownership, especially from Web2 native companies. But for artists, you know, what are some of the sentiments right now? You know, what's going to be popular in the next few months throughout this year? That's a really great question. And it's funny, if I knew, I would certainly, I think what I'm finding with this space is that it never ceases to surprise me. I think the one thing to think about when we look at volume and we look at everything that's happening at, again, this continuum of NFTs. NFTs are just a technology and there's, there's so much variety in how they can be used. So when we see volumes fall off for, for PFP projects and stuff like that, you know, I don't really equate what's happening with PFP projects and, and kind of identity-based NFTs having too much to do with what's happening on the art side of things. Obviously, like, I think the liquidity moves back and forth between those two worlds, but I'm mostly excited all about all the incredible artists that are using, you know, building these little micro economies around their their creative ideas, and that's where like I really think the the future of this space should and and will be headed. All right, so I think that's about all we have time for. But I want to revisit this ecosystem uh, metaphor that you talked about earlier with the soil, with the soil being ETH. You know, what are what are the trees? What are the <laughs> bugs? You know, we got to talk. We got to drop some more uh, living things in there. I would love to direct people to the book Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. He's this you know, world-renowned mycologist and studies microbial networks. So it's kind of all about how fungus, you know, the third kingdom of life, it's not classified as plants or animals, it's its own thing. What's in interesting about that is it's a kind of network-based organism that's completely decentralized. And it, it is the kind of internet of the forest. There's this nutrient economy in, that permeates the entire like, soil bed of, of every ecosystem. And microbial networks help the network optimize for the efficient you know, transfer of nutrients from plant to plant. They help convert different resources within the soil. And they, do, they actually have like a, a trading system with trees, trading different resources, exchanging phosphorus for carbon. It's really, really like a phenomenal uh, book to read if you want to understand about how that all works. But I just see a lot of similarities. I look at technological systems kind of as biological systems. And if you, you know, look at the way the, the internet works in general, and now blockchain technologies are kind of being interwoven into that, there's just so many commonalities with uh, how network systems work in nature as well. So I'm always looking for those cool little comparisons. And every time I apply something I've learned from nature in my own work and in my own ecosystems, it seemed to have uh, really, really proven out that thesis. Awesome. I love that framework. That's beautiful. I'll have to check it out, see how else we can apply it to what's, what goes on in the crypto world. 
Well, thank you so much, Dave, for joining. And we'll catch you in Austin from April 26th to 28th. Very exciting. It's going to be great. Can't wait. I'll see you guys there. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. You wake up in a room that's a you wake up in a brightly lit room, a gallery. You're surrounded by pillars of granite and marble. You don't know what's going on. Everything looks Greek. Or is it Roman? You're not sure. But you realize, where's your wallet? You, you search. The light's gone off now. You've, you're searching in the dark for your wallet. You try to pick it up and you find a stack of treasury bonds. That's right. This week in Danny's Dungeon, we're talking about treasuries. The most important financial instrument you've never heard of with regards to the crypto space. Treasury bonds are the most important instrument backing Circle's USDC stablecoin. Maybe some $30 billion of government debt is what's backing the value of USDC. The rest is in dollar deposits at banks. And can you guess what those banks are investing your deposits in? That's right. Treasury bonds. So if we just look at the crypto market, it's all just treasuries all the way down. Treasuries, treasuries, treasuries all the way down. I want to hear, hear your guys' thoughts on what I think is one of the big ironies of crypto. There's so many to choose from, but just the fact that so much of our ecosystem is based on government debt. Is that not something we should be worried about? Well, there's a huge irony here, which is that, you know, crypto was invented uh, apparently as a, an alternative to fiat currencies. And yet, arguably, stable coins, which came up because Bitcoin was so unstable and it couldn't be trusted as a payment mechanism because you could never know what the value of your Bitcoin was going to be worth uh, from one purchase to another. We got stable coins, which are very much kind of furthering the dollar system because everything about stable coins more or less is about moving dollars around or they're backed by dollars or they're backed by US treasuries, which are backed by dollars. So arguably stable coins are very much kind of furthering the dollarization of the world economy rather than offering some kind of end run around it. We're seeing that very much play out now. You know, we're seeing the underpinnings of these projects, you know, writ large uh, across our computer screens. Danny, I want to clarify one thing with you. So when you're talking about so much of cryptocurrency that exists being eventually backed by these treasury bonds. You're just talking about stable coins, correct? Well, you're right. I'm just talking about stable coins. I'm just talking about the trading pair to most crypto trades. So yes, uh, indeed I am. But the gravity of the importance of USDC is pretty profound. Oh, absolutely. Especially in DeFi and various DeFi ecosystems that use these pairs, especially with USDC and other different cryptocurrencies. It is definitely interesting to think about in the context of how USDC was created or formulated as an idea, which Ben, you were just talking about, the fact that it keeps its $1 peg in order to ensure that, yes, we have a decentralized, quote unquote, decentralized currency that will always stay a dollar because 
it's not going to do crazy things like Bitcoin does in order to help further adoption of cryptocurrencies. But at the same time, now it seems that we've just dug ourselves into a greater hole with understanding its roots in traditional financial regimes. Given the problems with stablecoins now and the revelations that the whole crypto system is actually based upon the dollar system, do we think that the genuine first cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin, which is actually at the moment, uh, as we talk on Monday, is rising in price uh, amidst this banking crisis, do you think Bitcoin will benefit in the long term uh, as the one true decentralized form of money? You know, I'm not a price speculator, but the premise of Bitcoin is that there's something broken about the banks, right? right? In the very first Bitcoin block, you have a message about bank bailouts from the government. Now we're seeing that there are huge swaths of the crypto industry that are far more reliant on government instruments than we, than we may have hoped. Indeed, Bitcoin is the only one that is fully separate from that, but I'm not really heartened by its rally. It's a very irrational rally that's spurred by everyone realizing that they're going to get their money back because the government is going to give them their money back. So once again, you see a system that is built around the government's role in our financial lives. And that's not really a bull case for Bitcoin, even if the failure of other cryptocurrencies that are far less decentralized uh, may be. So fam, let me know. How are you feeling right now? You leaning more of a Bitcoin maxi at the moment or are you, you know, you degening into NFTs and I don't know, ETH tokens or whatever? Um, always degening, right? That was a pained response, Kim. I don't know. I don't know if I believe you. That was you really had to force yourself. Let me explain how I think about this, okay? I see Bitcoin as the payments method, the infrastructure for paying for things, you know, using it as an actual currency. And then I see ETH as the foundation for the rest of the internet. So when have you ever used Bitcoin to pay for anything? Uh, I definitely have before. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, remember, I wrote that story and you sent me to the Bitcoin ATM. I bought some Bitcoin and then I used that to buy something. I forget what, but I, I used it. I use that Bitcoin. Drug purchases do count, so I'll give you that. Um, well, I'm not. We're not gonna. We're not saying that. <laughs> okay, Ben. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm definitely becoming more maximist about Bitcoin. I think there's going to be a flight to safety. I think there's going to be, you know, there's still a lot of money in crypto, and uh, you know that's going to go somewhere. So if people are not feeling good about stable coins anymore, and they're not feeling good about a number of more exotic types of crypto, I could see uh, a retreat back to the big incumbent, relatively safe place of, of Bitcoin. Yeah. If you like the show, or you hate the show too, honestly, because I'd really like to hear your reasoning there, follow us and tag us at Coindesk Podcast on the Twitters. And also leave a review on Apple Podcast. We want to hear your thoughts. We want to hear your considerations. Let us know what you think about crypto and tell us if you're a Bitcoin maxi too. Like with all this going down, how are you feeling about the crypto economy right now? Is it all just smoke and mirrors or is there something to it? We'll be taking the week off next week, but we'll be back in your feeds in late March. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. And thanks for joining us, Ben and Cam. Bye. 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 Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, 
subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.